Just approaching four minutes past 11 this Sunday morning, January the 29th, 2023. You're very welcome along and thank you for tuning in this morning. This is Gavin Riley with you for the next two hours on News Talk. This is On The Record. As always, we want to hear from you this morning. 53106 is the number for your text. That'll cost you 30 cents. We're also on Twitter. I'm at Gav Riley. The station is at News Talk FM. Our hashtag is On The Record NT. So please do get in touch with your thoughts about anything you hear on today's programme. A decent variety of stories on the front pages of the Sunday papers today. We'll start with the Sunday Independent. Uh, the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has sought the advice of the Attorney General on a long-delayed report into the botched succumbent of the former CMO Tony Houlihan to Trinity College Dublin. Mr Donnelly has had the report from the former Institute of Directors Chief Maura Quinn on his desk since last July, six months ago, but he hasn't been able to publish it due to concerns over affording due process and fair procedures to those involved in the controversy. He commissioned it after Robert Watt, the Secretary General in the Department, existed in his own report that there was nothing unusual about failing to tell Donnelly about the precise plan details of plans for Houlihan to become Professor of Public Health Strategy in Trinity College while the department would continue to cover his salary of €187,000 a year. Several government sources, the Sun Independent tells us today, uh, believe that the highly unusual six-month delay in publishing Ms Quinn's report is due to what one senior figure described as resistance to its findings from within the Department of Health where Mr Watt, who was centrally involved in succumbent, is the most senior civil servant. However, Mr Donnelly's spokesperson insisted last night all of those involved in the review of the succumbent have at all times fully cooperated uh, with the process. Um, we'll suffice to say, we'll maybe talk about this more later as we get into the, the papers later this hour. Um, it is routine enough for the Attorney General to need to have a look at reports before they are published, but certainly not routine uh, for that, that uh, process to take six months and potentially to run into the, the timeline of a second Attorney General to do so. Um, the front page of the Sunday Times. Two significant stories there. Uh, the first on the sidebar is that three high-profile Irish women were the victims of vile racist abuse last week as a charity revealed a rise in racist incidents. The sprinter Radisha Akaleki, uh, the author Emmett Dabbery and the RT presenter Emer O'Neill have all been subjected to a barrage of racist comments and attacks online. People have become a lot more vocal and are now unapologetically racist in their speech, O'Neill told the Sunday Times. Uh, racist incidents are on the rise and more people of colour are being targeted in public, according to the Irish Network Against Racism, which urged the authorities to do more uh, to tackle the issue. The main story on the Sunday Times is by Patrick O'Donoghue and it tells us that Enoch Burke could stretch out his clash with Wilson's Hospital School for many years to come warning legal experts um, warning that the teachers adding that rather that the teachers actions have raised deep concerns about the limits of the court system's power to enforce its orders in civil matters uh, um, Burke the Christian school teacher at the centre of this unfolding legal saga has consistently refused to purge his contempt of court and has returned to his former workplace despite being recently dismissed from the private church of Ireland boarding school last week the high court ruled the Burke would be fined €700 each day if he failed to comply with the court order restraining him from returning to the school. This amounts to almost €5,000 a week. However, Burke returned to the school once again last Friday morning. Barry Crushell an employment solicitor who leads his own specialist firm said that while Justice Brian O'Moore previously judged that Burke may be exploiting his imprisonment for his own ends, his daily protests at the school could be allowing him to promote his cause to an even greater extent through the recurring publicity that they're generating. Uh, perhaps more about uh, Enoch Burke and the coverage within him, of him uh, within the papers uh, in a couple of minutes' time. Front page of the Business Post, half of public are unhappy with the state's handling of the refugee crisis. This is a story that you heard Ellen refer to in the news headlines just a few minutes ago. Almost half of Irish people are dissatisfied with the government's handling of the Ukrainian refugee crisis according to a new Red Sea poll which also finds that just over a third think it is 
is not just the far right who are opposed to refugees being welcomed in Ireland. There's also strong support for the installation of modular housing without planning permission for people on social housing waiting lists rather than for Ukrainian refugees, according to the poll. The findings suggest a hardening of public attitudes after the arrival of around 70,000 Ukrainian refugees in the past 12 months, along with a further 13,000 people from other countries seeking international protection. Um, Also on the front page of the Business Post, TikTok is set to cut jobs from its Dublin office over the coming weeks, the Business Post can reveal. Uh, And the state's biggest developers, uh, investment funds and other businesses that own large amounts of unused land are, surprise, surprise, lobbying to avoid land hoarding taxes that would collectively be worth hundreds of millions of euros to the state and presumably uh, be worth hundreds of millions in liabilities uh, to them. Uh, and finally for now, uh, the front page story of the Irish Mail on Sunday, and I said we were going to deal with this in a little bit more detail because um, it's, it's quite a significant story and it's one that um, hopefully I will do justice to as I try to summarise it. Um, the front page, or the front paragraph, of the Mail on Sunday story really tells an awful lot of the story. Um, Successive Taoiseach and health ministers, including current cabinet ministers, agreed a secret plan to hide the true scale of the state's liability for illegal nursing home charges so as to prevent massive payouts. This is according to confidential government records disclosed to the newspaper uh, by the Department of Health whistleblower Shane Corr. Um, It is quite a dense story. We're going to get into it in just a couple of minutes with uh, John Lee, uh, the group political editor at The Mail and also uh, Valerie Cox, the journalist and author. There is quite a good timeline um, inside the paper and I'm going to just read some bits of it because I think it might give some sense to the story. Um, We go back to 1970 and the Health Act 1970 is passed, which entitles everyone to free long-stay care services in public institutions. In 1975, then, a High Court ruling finds that one patient had been unjustly charged. This prompts the Department of Health to consider other ways of maintaining the charges because despite them being illegal, they are still an important source of income. In 1976, then, the department makes new ministerial regulations and it sends a circular to the health boards telling them that despite the law saying the services are free, that they can, in fact, continue to charge. Uh, The Eastern Health Board writes back to the department with legal opinions showing that actually, no, we possibly can't. The charges are not legally sound. But the department continues to advise health boards to settle out of court whenever anyone challenges uh, the fact that they've been charged for the use of the service that ought to be free. Go to 1979, a legal advisor to the department again expresses the view that charges are not legally sound, that legislation will be required uh, to enable those charges to be levied. His advice is ignored. In 1982, a review within the department finds that there is no legal basis for the charges and yet no action is taken. In 1987, a Fianna Fáil government tries to regularise the situation by drafting a bill that would allow the charges, but the proposed law then is dropped. In 1989, there's a Commission on Health Funding which urges that the law be revised, but again, there is no change. In 1991, Mary O'Rourke, who's the Minister for Health at the time, announces a review of the charges which recommends that new legislation to achieve legal clarity is introduced, but again, nothing happens. 1994, Health Minister Brendan Howland publishes a strategy which says that the legislation is inadequate. New legislation is promised, but it doesn't materialise. In 2001, the Ombudsman highlights how several governments have failed to rectify the basis for these illegal charges. Michal Martin, who is the Minister for Health at the time, extends free medical cards by legislation to all over 70s. And because more people are now entitled to free care, and because the legal charges are still continuing anyway... The problem only gets worse. Uh, following year 2002, the South East Health Board, facing a number of legal cases, uh, gets legal advice from senior counsel, which again says that the charges are unjustifiable. 2003, a Human Rights Commission again once again reports inadequate legal grounds to make these charges. 2004, Mary Harney becomes Health Minister, requests advice from the AG about the validity of these charges. She then very quickly passes a bill to retroactively make all these charges legal, which is referred by President McAleese to the Supreme Court. 
And the Supreme Court then finds the people who had paid unlawful charges were entitled to recover monies. A report into the whole thing commissioned by Mary Harney is published. It highlights systemic corporate failure within the Department of Health for the previous 30 years. Um, no kidding, says you, listening to all of this. In 2006, the government sets up a health repayment scheme to compensate those medical card patients still living and the estates of those who died on or after December 1988. Patients forced into funding their own private care are excluded from the scheme. Hundreds of thousands of families are affected by the exclusions, but €477 million Euros paid out to 2,000 families. The Fair Deal scheme eventually becomes law in 2009. That puts charges on a legal basis. Uh, but the Ombudsman Emily O'Reilly published his report in 2010, still pointing out that hundreds of families were wrongly excluded from the compensation scheme and then this is where we get to the real meat of it because in 2011 uh, with that ombudsman report uh, on his desk finding out that there were thousands of people who were still improperly charged and faced with potential liability of 12 billion euro the newly appointed Minister for Health, James Riley, circulates what the paper describes as a top-secret memorandum based on advice from the Attorney General, Moira Whelan. The government knows that it cannot win any case brought by someone who is pursuing uh, the government for being wrongfully charged for the use of these services. So the government adopts a confidential policy of secretly settling cases to prevent more cases from actually coming forward. This policy is successful and cases begin to dwindle. The secret strategy continues under Health Minister Leo Varadkar in 2016 and then under Simon Harris in 2017. In 2017, Simon Harris and the junior health minister at the time, Helen McEntee, received a confidential update which says that no new cases are emerging so the containment strategy is reaffirmed. The current approach is working well, says that memo, and litigation is being managed successfully, the brief reads. I appreciate that that was a very long monologue for me trying to explain the guts of this, but what it effectively amounts to is that over half a century, the state was illegally charging people uh, for the use of nursing home services and other long-stay care, illegally so, and then being told that, in fact, there is no legal basis for the state to defend cases from someone who then tries to sue, the state is told to deliberately stifle those cases, to settle them secretly, so as to not highlight the fact that it is paying out, facing liabilities of €12 billion. And all of that uncovered uh, through a memo shared with the men on Sunday today uh, by the Department of Health whistleblower Shane Corr. As I said, join in studio by journalist and author Valerie Cox and by John Lee, who is the group political editor at DMG Media, which publishes The Mail on Sunday. Um, John, I'll start with yourself. I appreciate that what I just gave was very dense and a lot of the finer detail may have gone over people's heads. It doesn't help that I speak so quickly. But what this amounts to is an ongoing, systematic approach by successive governments of different parties and none to deliberately tell people to, to stifle legal cases because the state knows these are cases that it cannot win. Uh, yes, and you gave a, a wonderful summary of it. I won't. I won't uh, seek to emulate that. Well, please don't. Me, you've only got an hour for the show. Yeah. You know, I was. I was briefed on it. Um, in, in my role over politics in in, in our group. So um, y- you know, um, it's a political story, but it goes to the heart of what the Department of Health seems to get itself involved in uh, on so many levels. But to me, so what I'm saying is, that as a reader, to, to me, what I'm seeing is that. They were aware of what was essentially a legal problem hmm. uh, and, and something we may discuss later in the show, Enoch, uh, Enoch Burke's problems. I think they're a legal issue. People are getting involved in all kinds of emotion. Yes, they allowed that legal problem to sustain without uh, excising it from the department. Hmm. And, and we know the nature of the law is you cannot ignore something and hope it'll go away yeah. because the law is the law. And it was highlighted to them over and over and over. And they seem to have found that that ad hoc method of dealing with it, uh, it was was sufficient but it wasn't and um, 
it's hard to see now where we go on it because there's so many politicians past and present who seem to have been aware of it according to the information that we have been we have been given mm. let let them respond to say what their level of awareness was and um, what exactly they were doing at the time. Yeah, interesting to see if there is any uh, statement from anyone involved in government today. Just to run through the figures, um, 516 families have sued for compensation. It's estimated that uh, 5 billion is the potential liability uh, for illegally charged medical card holders. It becomes 12 billion, I think, when you include all the legal charges that might be involved in all of that. Um, the state has so far paid out 2.6 million uh, when you consider that it's potentially five billion, they've so, uh, so far only paid out two point six million uh, to eighty uh, claimants in what are referred to here as secret settlements between twenty eleven and twenty seventeen. No further cases have been pursued since that point, partly because, according to this internal government memo, uh, the policy of doing all of this in secret and never disclosing that there's been any settlement has been broadly successful. So people don't realise maybe that there is any scope for them to pursue this. Um, Valerie, what is particularly material about this, and just to take it out of the realm of politics, is just just how penal some of these charges can be and it's outlined within the paper just how distressed people were facing yeah. these bills that they never really should have faced and the consequences yeah. that that had for their lives. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about over the last 50 years, which is quite frightening. And what really concerns me is the human factor, the hardship on those families. And a couple of them are interviewed inside the paper here. I mean, you had people living on nothing, in debt, trying to pay nursing home charges. And also, can you imagine cutting back on all the important things in life? There were no celebrations. People People had to give up maybe that final holiday. They were worried about the cost of a funeral. And when you think of so many senior politicians who were involved in all of this over the years, it's almost like they took a vow of omerta as soon as they went into Cabinet. And, you know, the timeline you read out there, I think the most distressing one is 2017, the last entry, where um, the Health Minister, uh, Simon Harris at the time, and Junior Health Minister, Helen McEntee, got a confidential update and there were no new cases emerging. And the update said, the current approach is working well. Litigation is being managed successfully. Mm. Well, that is not their job. Their job is justice and being fair to some of the most vulnerable members in society and their families who are look after, uh, looking after them. I mean, what they did was they just dragged this out. And if you had the money to fight the case, you took a case, they settled it quietly. In some cases, they looked for you to sign a no disclosure mm. thing. And if you didn't have the money then, they just dragged it on and on. And money is owed to people going back so many years. People have almost forgotten about it. And I think it's quite critical to um, the Ombudsman's report in 2010, mm. um, where, you know, uh, people were trying to sue the state at that stage. And Emily O'Reilly, she was the ombudsman then, she published a damning report based on a thousand complaints from those people who were wrongly charged. It's appalling. And I mean, the way they worked it out was, um, yes, you had access to a public nursing home Mm. and... It, they tried to stop people basically going into it. They were saying there's no spaces, you have to go into private. And if you think about it, there are 460 nursing homes in this country and there's 25,000 citizens in nursing homes. So, you know, when you think of the damage done to those people, it is absolutely appalling. Yeah, um, I'm going to read a little extract from a complaint that was made to an earlier ombudsman in 2001. There was a report again published by the ombudsman then. Um, it includes testimony from a woman 
woman who had used all of her savings to cover the care for her mother who needed to pay significant nursing home bills. As we now know, in contrary to what the law had outlined, uh, the government telling health boards to still charge for this care, um, even though there was no basis in which to do so. Um, This person's mother had been in a private nursing home for the past 10 years. She was a widow with no assets. She only had a rented house. She's just 93 years of age, uh, said this woman in this report. As a family, we have been making up the shortfall between nursing home fees and the health board subvention for the past 10 years. My husband and I are both over 60 years of age and he needs to retire shortly. I am a full-time housewife and I don't work myself. In the past 12 months, we have paid over £6,500 at the time to the nursing home. During the course of the last 10 years, it has cost us over £35,000 and all of our savings have disappeared. At present, we are trying to place my mother in a cheaper nursing home, but unfortunately due to her age, infirmity and dependence, it is proving very difficult. That is just one illustration, Valerie, of a family and two other people's retirements who are materially changed forever. Because if you're retiring with a small little nest egg of a few tens of thousands of pounds, it might have been able to provide you with some relative comfort as you went into your older age. But this is an old couple that are on the verge of retiring themselves with no further income and now retiring with no savings because one elderly woman was being wrongly charged for service in a nursing home that she should have had for free. Yes, and um, services in a nursing home, some of the private nursing homes in particular will add on lots of different fees for dressings, for having your hair done, for all kinds of things, which really puts it up. Also, the fair deal scheme. While that works for a lot of people, there's been a lot of problems with that too. And particularly in the last few years, it's it's sorted now. But there was a huge problem for Ireland's farmers because the fair deal scheme they were getting was excluding most people from it. Mm. Now that's been sorted but if you look at it over the years these are our most vulnerable people. Why are we doing this? What are we doing? Why is nobody listening to these families? And for the government to go out, various governments to go out over these years and contrive a method that people couldn't claim compensation under Mm. to force people to pay for a nursing home when they were entitled to it for free. Mm. I think that is one of the worst things we have ever done in this state. I think you might you might guess uh, 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 what the reaction might be um, if you look at, at that timeline. A crucial a crucial intervention w- was in two thousand one when the then health minister Michal Martin um, decided to to widespread um, acceptance. I'd say mm. to extend the um, the uh, over seventies access. Mm. To, to the medical card to everybody yeah. now, which then uh, meant that all of those medical card holders should have been entitled to this service which ought to have been free yes now in my time covering politics the most um, striking explosion of public sentiment um, that I saw to, to turn around the government's policy was when in 2008 after our banks collapsed one of the first moves the government made the, under Brian Cowan and Mary Harney was to try and retract that medical card and there mm. was a there was a there was a, an explosion of sentiment then from old, um, old older people, but their families also. So I think that will give you an indication that w- w- sometimes when the lift the lid the, the lid is lifted on something like this, we might see um, a reaction people aren't quite expecting. Because yes, it's very it's a very dense story, but the emotions behind it are very obvious. Yeah. Um there's, it's an interesting split of, of responses coming in to, to text on 53106 and, and to Twitter. I'm at Gav Riley. Um, one person says the whole thing just simply looks like conspiracy to commit fraud and that everyone who had knowledge of this policy ought to be charged for it. And somebody else who's involved in the, in the management of the health services, Noble Guardian, a regular uh, anonymous contributor to us, says that they feel awful for these people and the suffering that they endured. But this person says they would not sacrifice future generations' prosperity 
by paying out for these historical crimes. I would rather see a Statute of Limitations Act instead. We have better things to spend the money on. I'm not sure about that one because the relative wealth of very ordinary families has been left depleted in terms of inheritance and so on because of this. So I think they should go after every penny involved. And I think all of these people who've been named right across the page here, the senior politicians, they need to take some responsibility for this too. I mean, they need to be fined. They need to be told, look, you made a mess of this. It wasn't even a mistake. And we've, you know, we've let so many mistakes go through the system. This is not a mistake. This is absolutely contrived crime and they need to be they need to suffer for it I'm not sure how we do it but we yeah. need to do something I, I genuinely would be curious to know why it was that a government legislated in 1970 to make all these services free and then very suddenly realised that it couldn't do without the revenue from those services and, and why then a decision was made to continue charging for something that they'd only just legislated to make free of charge uh, and why even a government under Jack Lynch uh, and the Minister for Health Erskine Childers at the time would legislate to create something free if they simply knew that they couldn't fund making it so. I, I, I would love to know uh, why that was the case. Were there just some political pressures at the time that, that felt them um, felt that they were kind of bounced into it? Um, well, I can tell you, I got a text from a politician since, um, <laughs> since he found out it was coming on mm. this. Um, and, and that politician said that, you know, there was never an, a, an attempt to, um, to have a proactive refund scheme uh, because focus had to be um, on continuing to fund to provide nursing home oh. care. So you weren't ref- um, yeah. dealing with the problem because the, the, because the, yeah, you had to pay for today's services, which is yeah, which is because money was you know. Um, I tweeted earlier on that this story felt pretty enormous, and Shane Corr, the, the whistleblower behind it on Twitter, has replied say, simply to say that it felt pretty enormous when he discovered it too. Uh, no doubt, I'm sure it's going to be something that's going to be discussed at great length. Uh, keep your texts coming about it if you like. Five three one zero six at a cost of thirty cent on the record. NT is our hashtag. Uh, more to come elsewhere in the papers with John and Valerie when we're back after this. Half past 11 this Sunday morning. Gavin Riley with you on the record until one o'clock. Uh, there is some significant news breaking this morning uh, in Britain, which involves the sacking of the leader of the Conservative Party in person who was uh, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer. And the fact that he was Chancellor of the Exchequer is pretty germane to the whole story. Uh, it concerns the sacking of Nadim Zahawi. Uh, we're joined on the line by Lewis Goodall, investigations editor at Global Radio, co-host of the News Agents podcast. Um, Lewis, what exactly is it that Nadim Zahawi has done which merits him being sacked from Cabinet today? Well, there's two things. There's one thing on the actual substance, and there's another on how he's handled it. The thing that uh, this is, uh, the reason this came about, is because Nadim Zahawi, uh, as a minister, had to settle his emerged a very, very large tax bill with HMRC, the tax man in the UK, to the tune of about five million pounds, and about a million pounds of that. So we're not talking about small change here. Five million pounds and about a million pounds of that was a penalty for effectively, it would seem, he tried to say it was carelessness that he just hadn't, you know, filled in the form properly, all those things people will be, will be familiar with. But HMRC made it very clear you don't get charged a penalty of a million pounds for a bit of carelessness. This was, they were saying, effectively negligence in how he was handling his tax affairs. So, so by his own account, sorry to interrupt you halfway through, Lewis. So, by his own account, then he, he had to pay, uh, or he underpaid tax by four million pounds. Something and then like had to that. pay a penalty of another one million because of his own bureaucratic sloppiness. Well, that was, he says, yes, that was that was the most charitable case that you could put. That's what he was saying. I mean, HMRC effectively seemed to be indicating. We don't know the exact communications, obviously, but seemed to be indicating that it was a rather more malign than just sloppiness. So people can take their own conclusions from that. 
that was sort of bad enough, not least because he actually had to make this accommodation with HMRC when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, i.e. the taxman himself, effectively, or at least in charge of the taxman. So that was sort of absurd. But then the real problem, or one of the other real problems, is how he handled it. So when this story started to kind of percolate around during the summer in a brief period where Zahari himself was running for Conservative Party leader, and the way he reacted to this, he basically said, there's nothing to see here to any journalist who was asking him, you know, I'm being smeared, very Trump-like in that regard, and even threatened to sue for libel journalists who were suggesting what in hmm. fact had taken place and happened. And that is really, really serious. And as the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's uh, ethics, independent ethics investigator made clear today, that in itself is a breach of the serious breach of the ministerial code against which all ministers must be judged. So it is not only, as I say, the substance is very serious, but the evasive way, to put it mildly, that Zahawi treated the allegations was more serious still. So in a straightforward way then, and this all goes back to the, that flurry of resignations around the time of Boris Johnson's ouster as the Prime Minister. He was two Prime Ministers ago, we have to remind ourselves sometimes. But when <laughs> Denim Zahawi became the Chancellor and there were questions raised about his own tax affairs, that when he, as the serving Chancellor of the Exchequer, effectively lied to the media and to the public about the extent to which he himself was under scrutiny. Well, yes. I mean, we've got a situation where he, uh, as I say, evaded questions putting it at the very most charitably, he evaded questions and he was not also, the point is internally, he did not declare that this investigation was even, and we've learned this today from the letter from Sir Laurie Magnus that he sent to the Prime Minister, which has been published, he did not declare to the Cabinet Office, nor to the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson and then the subsequent Prime Minister mm. Liz Truss, nor to Rishi Sunak, did not declare this was going on, so that they were not in a position to know that this investigation was going on when they appointed him, which itself is another breach of the ministerial code. So it's just a kind of catalogue, a catalogue of errors, mistakes, and quite frankly, deliberate obfuscations. Now, I I don't mean to sort of be be tart in asking this, but what standing does Rishi Sunak have to now uh, dismiss him from cabinet when he himself, as a chancellor, was so good at the job he couldn't even get his own wife to pay taxes? Well, I think this is one of the... I mean, look, uh, journalists myself from Westminster have been thinking about trying to sort of get our head around all week. Everyone knew that this was coming. There was no way Zahawi was surviving this. It was just ridiculous in the extreme. Um, and we were trying to sort of work out, scratching our heads, you know, surely Sunak himself must be able to, to see that. Why is he putting it off until today, as he's now done? I think one of the reasons was, is that, yeah, I think Sunak is in a difficult position around financial affairs and questions of financial integrity. That's not to suggest, of course, that he has avoided tax himself or anything like Mm -hmm. that. But it's true to say that, look, there's two things. One, you've already alluded he had significant problems with the tax affairs of his wife, who it turned out was a non-dom, i.e. not domiciled for tax in the UK. It's not legal or anything like that, but it's it's certainly politically difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then secondly, look, we've never had... I mean, people often think, don't they, that their leaders are sort of rich and sort of, you know, absolutely loaded. (laughs) But, you know, we haven't actually had a prime minister who is as rich as Rishi Sunak before. You know, he's he's not just a kind of, he's not just well off or comfortable like most prime ministers are. He is actually really many ways part of the kind of global elite, right? He's mega, mega rich. And that really does pose particular political problems. So I think to some extent, he probably just feels uncomfortable around questions of tax affairs and financial privacy and so on because he has a, 
a muscle memory of what went on with his wife, which was only you know six months ago or whatever it was yeah. now. God, I think that, that is part of the six months ago, two prime ministers ago. Uh, fascinating yeah. time to wait to see exactly what the ongoing fallout of that might be. Lewis Goodall, thanks for joining us this morning to bring us up to speed on that. Lewis Goodall is a co-host of the News Agents podcast, which you find anywhere you get your audio online. He's the investigations editor at Global Radio. You also find him, I think, as a presenter on Fridays on LBC Radio uh, in London. Um, understandably, lots of texts coming in about the nursing home story. Uh, Jay in Cork says, having worked in nursing homes for years, surely nursing home owners must take some culpability for their greed and their laissez-faire accounting over the years. We need public homes, he says. I think the attitude, the, the response to that, Jay, is that nursing home providers, whether they're public or private, they still expect to be paid for the service. But the point here was that the state was supposed to be covering the bills. I don't think it's necessarily the concern so much of those who actually operate the homes as to who is paying the bills once the bills are paid one way or another. Uh, Jane in Dublin says the key point is surely that successive senior government ministers and the Department of Health knew that nursing home charges were illegal. This amounts to decades of cover-up. I don't use this word lightly, says Jane, but this is sickening. And Tony in Louth, final text on this for now. Gavin, you say you find it hard to understand how charges such as that for nursing homes were removed without calculating the consequences. Well, I'm old enough to remember that that's the way elections were bought in those days. When similar was done with car tax and domestic rates, all to buy the next upcoming election, eventually had to be restored in the case of car tax. And you might say property tax is replacing the domestic rates, says Tony in County Laird. Uh, thank you for, for offering that uh, slightly longer term perspective, Tony. You might well be right that it might simply have been uh, an attempt to uh, retroactively pay the bills for buying the previous election. Um, let us know your thoughts on that. Five three one at a cost of 30 cent. Um, the, the scale of the financial infraction involving Nadim Zahawi may uh, come in, uh, cast in sharp relief um, some of what uh, political correspondents like John and myself have been uh, getting concerned about over the last two weeks. Um, John Lee, you are yourself writing today in the Irish Mail on Sunday, forget populist rhetoric, foreign donations are the real political funding scandal. As if to say that it is not so much the, the uh, donations in kind of putting up posters, but rather foreign funding of political agents in this country. Well, I was just discussing in a piece um, how many of us who work in Leinster House were a bit befuddled as to why Sinn Féin, um, who um, are not without accusations towards themselves about their own treatment of um, political donations and funding, uh, because they use a facility where they have a significant presence in Northern Ireland, which is Britain, mm. um, to um, receive donations far in excess of those that you're permitted to under regulations here. Um, but I think that that's a misconception of what Sinn Féin's um, political uh, strategy is. Because if you look closely at what Sinn Féin themselves say, and uh, often politicians are disinclined to discuss their strategy. Uh, if you listen to Owen O'Brien, for instance, um, who has discussed at length in a project with the U- with UCD, um, it, it's a, it's a classic populist tactic that you would cast um, um, political accusations against people, expecting those political ac- ac- accusations to come back at you, but you don't care. Um, because you are representative of a group of, of, of people, and that's mm. what they're called, the people who take on the elites. So Sinn Féin, um, th- their, their strategy okay. is now to bring every small infraction, uh, it's clear, okay. uh, into the doll and make a big deal out of it. So, and sometimes we're wondering 
yeah. why is this happening? I, I should just say, of course, that it, we don't have a Sinn Féin representative to, to counter that, but I would say that Sinn Féin would, of course, always say that while there are two different rules, sets of rules around donations in the two jurisdictions, that they are always very assiduous in following the rules in both jurisdictions and that funding intended for one doesn't go to the other. With, with that being said, so... You think that, that Owen O'Brien and this interview that he did, which is available as a podcast with Aidan Regan, who's a regular contributor to this programme as well, that effectively that they they are making an art out of creating a plague in all your houses scenario because even if it does cast some aspersions on them, that it ultimately is part of their greater political strategy. Well, that's what they themselves say. You, you know, um, as I say, it's, it's, it's unusual. You'd rarely get a, a senior politician in Fine Gael or Fine Fall discussing what they're political creed is and many the criticism of both those parties often is that there isn't a political creed Mm. Um, whereas members of Sinn Féin do and they have described themselves as left populist um, and own a brain principle among them and there are are many academics studies to outline what populism has become in the last 10 years and many many people do not believe that there's anything wrong with populism and the votes gained by people like um, uh, uh, Donald Trump have shown that there is great support for for this but it has its effects in our democracy yeah. and we're seeing it in the doll at the moment. Uh, just going back to the the basis of, of all of this coming up, which is the, the controversy surrounding Pascal Donoghue, you, you seem to take the stance, uh, we'll move on in just a minute, you seem to take the stance that the, the proportion of airspace, column inches and doll time that it garnered was disproportionate to the scale of the alleged infraction. I, you know, Maybe I'm not sure. I, 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 one, one can't question the editorial decisions of of um, other institutions. They may have information that I don't have. But certainly when we were looking at it in our newsroom, we just couldn't quite see it. Now, I don't doubt people believed there was a story there. And Mary Lou MacDonald said on the record of the doll that she, she felt that Pascal Donoghue's account of what had happened was a cock and bull story. Mm. Uh, that's what she said. But unfortunately, nobody had the proof that that wasn't the case. So I just didn't see the proof for it. But ultimately, ultimately, and I do wind up the piece by saying that the real problem is the failure to properly govern and um, give powers to the, the the body that's supposed to govern mm. political donations in this country and that's yeah. CEPO. Yeah, the very fact that they can't uh, initiate investigations of their own volition, they need to wait for a, a complaint to be made, which is quite ironic that the party or the, the entity which is supposed to receive those accounts doesn't have the authority to then go back and launch an investigation into whether they're proper or not. Well, I've had dealings with CEPO down the years and, and some, of, some of it has been unusual to say the least. I wrote an article on Sinn Féin TDs on the record um, a discussion of how her wages and expenses were che- um, were, were used by the party in 2011. She was called to a hearing. I wasn't called to provide the taped interview that I'd conducted. That's a strange way to go about things and that's my experience. Yeah. I'm not saying anything else other than what yeah. my dealings are with them. Uh, it's a curious one. I will move on in, in a couple of minutes because there's a few other pieces in the papers that I want to get to including some of the discussion around uh, Enoch Burke. But just um, to, to draw a line under that whole discussion, Valerie, do you think in hindsight, that the degree of coverage, uh, whether it on stations like this or in newspapers or on TV broadcasters like the one I work for, that it was all in proportion, given what was being discussed? I do think it was in proportion. And even if you look back to the earlier story we had there in the nursing homes, I mean, if we weren't talking about it, who's going to know about it? We need to do this. We need everyone to know about it. And we need also, you were talking about, um, you know, teeth for SEPO there. 
We need more teeth in terms of putting in some sort of a controlling agency. I mean, that's going to come up now in when we talk about Enoch Burke, that there's really very, very little can be done. But th- those teeth are fundamental. And maybe if we had things like that, we wouldn't have the nursing home controversy. But just going back to Sinn Féin for a second, it's a very okay. interesting article in the Mail on Sunday about their quandary in finding decent election candidates next time out. Well, I'm and sure they would say that all their candidates are decent. But yes, so this, this, so this goes <laughs> well, back no, to the question that they, they ran too few candidates last time around yes, that they need to try and find some more to share their votes this time. A source within the party um, is not happy with it. They said, uh, to put it bluntly, there's no talent pool and what they're talking about are the local elections. So they've done a thing on each county and I just think it's quite funny because um, they're talking about Wicklow, my county, mm. and they're talking about the poll-topping performance of the relatively unknown John Brady who trounced local heavyweights such as Simon Harris and Stephen Donnelly. Come I mean, on, Johnny lads. Brady was relatively unknown to the people who voted for him. No, John Brady has been in politics since 2004. That is 20 years since he was elected as a local councillor and that is dismissing our uh, relationship to local councils. If you did a poll or a survey Mm. of all our local councils over the last 20 years, you would find that that is the pool where we found most of our TDs. So, I mean, it's quite a ridiculous thing not to be watching what's going on at local well, level. I think that's the, the uh, political editor of the male group must rely on. Well, this, this is John Drennan's piece. I mean, maybe that's a bad example. And, and just off the top of my head now, I didn't, I didn't have involvement in this. But there were, for instance, uh, candidates in the last election for Sinn Féin that had lost their council seats and then were and then were elected yeah, to the there door. Were, there were four who lost I, I, their council seats. So John, to say was, goal, John yeah. Brady to say he was relatively unknown is probably you know picking one out that that, that maybe John would revise years. himself. John well, Drennan would revise, but yeah. others, for instance, um, I think on a national yeah. basis, even were you to ask a lot of people in Ireland uh, and even in that part of the world where I live mm. um, who Denise um, Denise Mitchell was and did they recognise her from a photograph they would, they would struggle to do so yet she had one of the highest votes in the history yeah, she, of the she state had, had the, the highest there. vote right. uh, in first preferences in 2020 and Mairead Farrell a lovely woman who I deal with a lot in Leinster House might yeah. question this but I'm almost sure she lost her council seat and then was elected to the Dáil which is unusual to, to yeah. say the least there's certainly four candidates who lost their seats in 2019 to the locals but then got elected to the Dáil for Sinn Féin in 2020 and uh, not to continue the, the John Lee pylon, but uh, Frankie has been in touch on Twitter. Can you remind John Lee that Northern Ireland is not Britain, as he said? I, I think he meant it from a a, a, a constitutional governance sense, but I, th- I think we all know where we're going. Uh, for the record, by the way, can, can I just say that I, I do think that it was... Uh, it was warranted the extent of coverage about Pascal Donoghue. I think a minister for finance who didn't know how his campaign was being financed or a minister for public expenditure who didn't know how his campaign was spending or the spending that it was indirectly incurring is pretty significant. The fact that he was a minister responsible for the ethics system who in 2017 knew that his own election disclosures were incomplete but didn't update them I think is pretty significant. Um, you might say that the, the scale of the financial issue is not much but I still think that all of those things uh, made it warranted if nothing else at least. Um, I do have to take a commercial break because there are other pieces of the paper that I need to get to with John and Valerie after this. Just turned 10 to 12 this Sunday lunchtime. Gavin Riley with you till 1 o'clock on the record. 53106, the number for your text on the record NT is our hashtag on Twitter. Um, I said there was a couple of other pieces that I wanted to get to, but I do want to make time to discuss some of the newspaper coverage around the ongoing legal uh, saga of Enoch Burke. It's the front page of the Sunday Times. There's quite a bit inside uh, the Sunday newspapers as well, um, particularly the Sunday Independent, I think. Um, one of the major themes that's raised by it, Valerie, is, and, and let's be careful because there's still some matters of this that are of still course. subdued to say, um, but what the courts can do 
um, in an instance where somebody is on the wrong, the other end of a civil case and basically refuses to acknowledge the outcome of that case. Yeah, um, it's very interesting because there's a lot of commentary on that in the papers today. And I mean, there is a kind of, there's concerns about the limits of the court system to enforce its orders in civil matters. And also, um, I think what happens next, that's where we're going now. Um, what happens to um, Enoch Burke? Does he go back to prison? Do they allow him to turn up daily at the school? Um, which is disrupting the school activities and upsetting the pupils. And it also points out there's lots of legal routes still open to Burke. I mean, he can go to the WRC, he can Mm. look for a judicial review. There's lots and lots of things that can happen. But interestingly enough, in some of the commentary, um, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties says this dispute should not be framed as a conflict of rights, despite his best efforts to do so. And he also said um, Burke's defiance points to the need for a form of civil legislation around legal penalties for breaches of civil law. Now, mm. also the papers today are beginning to look at his side of it a bit. Um, there's two major pieces in the Sunday Independent by Ali Bracken and Eilish O'Hanlon. Mm. And Eilish says dismissing Burke is easier than trying to understand him. She says um, one problem is that most people um, commenting on the story are more interested in telling everyone what they think about Enoch Burke rather than listening to him. And this reference points to Christians. She says it's been erased in a secular world. We don't even have the language to talk to them anymore. We've all been conditioned to believe that everyone wants acceptance. And then along comes someone who doesn't need to be liked, challenging the comforting lives, sorry, lies by which we live which I thought was very interesting mm. um, because so many of the papers are picking up on the humorous stuff, the cartoons, yeah. and even we're getting great descriptions of what he's wearing. Who cares what he's wearing? Mm. I mean, it's turning him into some sort of a figurehead, an image, something we're expecting to open the papers every day and look at and listen to the radios and hear all of this. We're, we're getting tied down, we're getting bogged down completely in this ephemeral stuff that doesn't yeah. really matter. Eilish uh, O'Hanlon has, has done a little bit of a service actually by she's uh, seems to have um, bought you know, Burke's two self-published books which are available on, yeah. on Amazon and some of the, the quotes at least g- give slightly more insight into his, his worldview and his interpretation of Christianity. He says in one of his books that there is no room in Christendom for those who desire an easy life or for those whose preference it is to sit out the battle with principalities and powers on the fence. Uh, he also says in another instance that a resolute a refusal to conform to worldly fashions has long been one of the distinctive hallmarks of real Christianity. And the duty of the Christian is to actively oppose the work of the devil when and where he meets it. Which at least gives us, puts slightly more meat on the bones really of, of what Enoch Burke's uh, take on these events might be. Well, I think that's how the Sunday Independent have done it very well today because what they've done is on page five, they've a, they've, um, a very um, newsy, uh, factual piece by uh, Ali Bracken and then inside Aisha Hanlon does a discussion of issues which are, she would point out, 2,000-year-old issues. So, you know, on, on the face of it, Enoch Burke is having a, a public discussion about Christianity and the the values by which he holds to and um, mm. certain aspects of Christianity that he pursues of the Pentecostal evangel- evangelical tradition. But that... But, the important th- piece is Ali Bracken's, which discusses the legality, yeah. and that's so. In the in the eyes of the law, whatever your opinions are, 
they aren't taken into account when legal barriers are sat down to yeah. you expressing them. So the fact is that he is, it looks like, in breach of an order that prevents him from going to that school and he will probably pay the repercussions. The man has also made it clear that he is willing to go to jail for, for those beliefs. He has already spent over 100 days in Mountjoy Prison for a contempt of court which is something that a journalist might be open to if they refuse to take an order from a judge to reveal their sources, for instance. But it would also not look too great for him because there are legal impediments to his actions um, in front of him. Uh, We should, of course, say that 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 would be Enoch Burke's framing of the dispute that he has, Wilson's Hospital, and certainly this is the view that seems to have been taken by courts, is not so much that um, Enoch Burke is falling foul of some guidance on on recognising a transgender student. It is rather the means in which he has chosen to exercise that grievance is is what has been uh, at issue in that whole case. And the the papers do make it clear that, you know, there are young people um, at the heart of this. Indeed. I'll finish with just a small passage from uh, Seamus Clark on the front page of the Sunday Times a senior counsel with extensive experience in employment law he says he's concerned that Burke may become so stubborn and intransigent that no coercive actions available to the courts for failing to comply with a court order would ever compel him to purge his contempt he says there's only ever been a small minority of individuals in the history of the state who were so entrenched in their beliefs or determined to pursue a course of action that neither imprisonment nor financial sanctions would cause them to obey court orders he's like a badger who has sunk his teeth into a bone he says he won't let go you can bet that if it's 30 mornings or 60 mornings he'll be coming back every morning I did employment law for a long long time I've never come across somebody who once they were suspended kept on turning up to work you ruin the chances of the suspension being turned into non-dismissal he says um, there's plenty more that we could discuss but I'm completely out of time uh, thank you both very much for coming in this morning and sorry for uh, waylaying so much of the chat with the discussion on nursing homes earlier but I think it was warranted in that instance uh, Valerie Cox a journalist and author John Lee is executive editor of the Daily Mail Group thank you both very much we joined after the news by the Minister for Agriculture about that Quilter deal don't go away